0: All right. So Paul is now going to go into he just talked about how in chapter six, how we're freed from sin. We're no longer to live in that way. We're to present the parts of our body as instruments of righteousness rather than as slaves to sin and instruments of sin. And now he's going to tell us how to do that. And he begins by telling us essentially that the law is not the vehicle of that. The law will not be the vehicle of our sanctification. And we'll, we'll explain what that means as we come along. But he's going to begin by saying, this is, this is our relationship with the law as Christians. And he, he starts with this analogy of uh, divorce and remarriage. In one, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is Lord over a person as long as he lives. So it has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of the marriage. So then if she is joined to another man while her husband is alive, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she is joined to another man, she is not an adulteress. So my brothers, you also died to the law Through the body of Christ, so that you could be joined to another, to the one who was raised from the dead, to bear fruit to God. So he begins with this analogy. Now, obviously, um, we're not going to talk about divorce and remarriage, but I do want you to note that obviously the absoluteness of marriage and the fact that you cannot get remarried, divorced, and remarried, uh, it plays a part in this analogy. If there is some other way that you can like, divorce someone for some reason, and someone doesn't have to die, this whole analogy breaks down. His whole point is that the only way out of the law is through death. That's the, that's the larger point. And therefore, what he's saying is a death has occurred through the body of Christ. We have been crucified with Christ, as he said before. We've died with Christ. We were united to him in his death, and so we died with him. And because of that, the law no longer has jurisdiction over us. And that is because the law's jurisdiction is while someone's alive, and uh, it, it can judge them by giving them execution for their crimes. But once they're executed, that's it. It doesn't go beyond that. And so here with Christ, you have the same thing. Christ was executed on our behalf. We were executed along with him. And therefore, the penalty of the law has already been meted out. That's it. There's no more. So he's going to end, of course, in 8.1. He's going to say, therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because you already were condemned in Christ. So the law no more, has no more jurisdiction over you. That's it. There's no more judgment by the law. Um, I want to make it very clear when I talk about that we're going to be judged by in accordance with whether we have good or evil works that is in accordance with that's a, a judgment looking at our fruit to see if Christ is our Lord. It's not a judgment of the law unless in fact we've not been judged with Christ we're not really in Christ then we will be judged uh, by the law. we're still under the jurisdiction of the law and the execution that it's going to give us the removal of uh, of, uh, of ourselves from life in the land of the living. But that has been done already in Christ. Now, it's very important that we understand this chapter. A lot of times this chapter is used to justify, frankly, living in sin or arguing that Christians, the Christian life is just a life of sin because there's nothing they can do about it. I am um, I'm, 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 I'm strongly push back against that idea. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. He just got done arguing that's not how we're to live. He's going to argue again in chapter 8 that that's not how we're to live. And I think that even he says here in verse 4, he says, look, you've died to the law in order to be joined to another. Who's the, the other we're joined to? Well, Christ, the one who was raised from the dead. For what purpose? Very last clause, to bear fruit to God. So this has occurred for the purpose of us bearing fruit. Again, just like we talked about before, the purpose was to become like Jesus. The purpose was to lead to holiness, to be conformed to the image of the son. And so that's why we have been released from the law. We've been freed from the law of sin and death to become righteous, not to live in sin further. And so that's not really what Paul's argument is going to be. Verse five, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful desires aroused by the law were active in the parts of our body to bear fruit for death. So rather than bearing fruit to God, bearing fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law because we have died to what controlled us so that we may serve in the new life of the spirit and not under the old written code. (coughs) So as as he said throughout Romans The law brings in sin. It makes the flesh want to sin all the more. He's going to talk about this um, further as we go down. What shall we say then? Verse 7. Is the law sin? Meganoita. Absolutely not. The law is not sin. Uh, The law is not the boogeyman. The law is not the bad guy in this whole thing. Very important to understand. Christians, a lot of modern Christians, treat the law as though it's something bad, evil, uh, something we should avoid. Paul in this chapter is going to say the law is good, just, it's right, it's, it's what love looks like. The law is good, it's the character of God. So um, the law is not the problem. Of course, as we've said before, and what Paul is going to say here is that our nature is the problem. And so with the old man, the law interacted with the old man in a way so as to produce sin even more because the, the, the flesh didn't want to obey the law. And that's all we were, we are flesh. Uh, we were just in Adam and we were in rebellion against God. And so the law came in and we just hated it all the more. And so we sinned all the more. It's like taking a box and putting it in front of little children and saying, whatever you do, kids, I'm going to leave the room, but don't look in the box then, of course, immediately they want to look in the box like that's the, the, the commandment comes in and, and it just increases sin that way. Now, if you had put the box in the corner and said nothing about it, it probably would have been fine. You you wouldn't have the kids look in it. But now they want to uh, because it stimulates all the more the flesh. It's like I, I don't I this is something I'm not supposed to do. So it's more exciting for the flesh to do it. So he says, Meganoida, absolutely not. The law is not sin. The law is not the problem. Certainly I would have not known uh, sin except through the law, for indeed I would not have known what it means to desire something belonging to someone else, so coveting, if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of wrong desires, for apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but with the coming of the commandment, sin became alive and I died. So I found the very commandment that was intended to bring life brought death for sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it, I died. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? Meganoida, absolutely not. But sin, so that it would be shown to be sin, produced death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold into slavery and sin. So again, this is the argument that the problem is me. The problem is my nature. So what happens to a redeemed individual? Now you're redeemed, right? But this is the point of the the already not yet. The point is, is that you're already redeemed in your spirit, in the inner man, in your mind, but you're not yet redeemed in your body. And so sin remains in your body. The desire to sin remains in your body. So it doesn't change the flesh to be redeemed right now. The flesh is not changed. And it's not going to be. This is Paul's point, And this is something you really need to understand. The, the, you cannot be sanctified. By somehow changing the flesh. Through law. It's going to have the same reaction. It has always had. Apart from Christ. Which is. Rebellion. And it wants to sin all the more. So by you merely saying, I shouldn't covet, so now I'm going to try to make myself not covet, is not going to work. You're going to end up coveting all the more. So the solution and the the life of sanctification is not one that is lived out by saying, well, the law says this, I should do that, so I'm going to try really, really hard to do that. That's not how it works. We'll discuss that more because he's going to tell us how it works, uh, what we need to do. (coughs) Notice also this is not talking about just Jewish law rituals, as some people try to say. The example here is what? Coveting, which is one of the big ten, Ten Commandments. It's not just moral law. It's the epitome of the moral law, the Ten. So we're talking about the actual morality of the law. How do I actually become the character of God? It's not by subduing my flesh, changing the nature of my flesh with the law, the law doesn't do that. The law shows that my flesh is actually wicked and and, and remains wicked because my flesh wants to do the same evil things that it did before. Now, notice he says the law is good, it's just, it's right. That's the acknowledgement of the Christian. The law is good. There's nothing bad about the law. It's the character of God. But it cannot be the vehicle of salvation, just like it cannot be the vehicle of justification, it cannot be the vehicle of sanctification. Now, it doesn't mean that the law is not used by us in terms of revelation and understanding the character of God. That's why he says, look, without the law, I don't have any confirmation that coveting is actually bad. I can kind of imagine it might be bad, but I don't know for sure. Your culture can deceive you. I mean, look at all the people who claim to be Christians who think that homosexuality is okay. Well, we go to the law, and there's a confirmation that, no, it's actually wrong. And so the law helps us, in terms of revelation, understand what does justice and righteousness and holiness look like? What does the character of God look like? So we need it for those reasons. But it's not a means of transformation. It just tells us what it looks like to be transformed but it doesn't tell us how to get there. And in fact, we can't get there through the flesh because the flesh is corrupt. So it can only show me what is good and holy and right. In other words, it can only show me the character of God and Jesus Christ, the righteous man that I am supposed to be, but it cannot get a fallen man there. Paul argues this about justification in the earlier chapters, and now he argues it about sanctification Because if the law cannot put me in a right standing before God, due to the fact that it conflicts with my rebellious, unredeemed nature before my spirit is regenerated in Christ, then that means that although my spirit is in agreement with the law, my flesh slash body is still in rebellion and cannot be redeemed, that is, made like Christ through the law either. To state it another way, while in Adam, The law condemns and produces further unrighteousness in us and a part of us, uh, our bodies are still in Adam. What this means is that the law cannot be a vehicle of either justification or sanctification because it cannot change the Adamic nature in either my spirit or my flesh. Which is why we needed to be regenerated, justified in Christ through faith and it couldn't have been through the law. In the same way, what is needed now is a refuge in the spirit and fighting the flesh with the spirit. And that's going to be Paul's argument, essentially. But before he gets into that, he's going to talk a little bit about what it's like for a Christian to sin. He's going to draw from his previous experience as someone who was just unregenerate. And he's also going to talk about his current experience as someone who is regenerate. And this is confusing to people when they read chapter seven because they're like, "Well, is this Paul before he was saved? Is it after he's saved?" I, I think it's actually both, because he's drawing upon that analogy. He's actually saying, "Hey, look, uh, just like we were condemned in Adam and the law didn't didn't save us then, it can't save the flesh now. So it cannot be a means for sanctification." So what happens when a Christian sins? He's got a regenerate nature. He's got an inner man who actually loves God. is a slave to righteousness. But then he's got his body, his flesh, the parts of his body that just want to like sin and do evil. They just want that again, that dopamine rush. Like, what, what does it look like? Well, he's going to describe it in verse 15. For I don't understand what I am doing. For I do not do what I want. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I do what I don't want, and I agree that the law is good, but now it is no longer me doing it, but sin that lives in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. Now, let's stop there for a minute. That's very important. There's no divine spark in your flesh. There's no image in your flesh. There is nothing good at all in your flesh that is in your body that is not yet redeemed. Therefore, it's not going to respond to the law in a positive way. It's in rebellion against it. So all the law can do is condemn it. Yet you've died to the law, so the condemnation of the law is over. So how do we use the law as Christians? Well, of course, we know the new covenant is about the law being written on our hearts. Paul's going to argue here that in his mind, in his inner man, he loves the law, he agrees with the law completely, and so he wants to do the law. But it's not merely through some sort of legalistic transaction to where, well, I'm going to obey the law, therefore I will, and so my flesh, I just need to stop my flesh from having those desires. Your flesh is going to have those desires. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For I want to do the good, but I cannot do it. Talking about his flesh again. For I do not do the good I want, but I do the very evil I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer me doing it, but sin that lives in me. So I find the principle that when I want to do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that is in the parts of my body. Again, this is Paul talking about what happens when a Christian sins. So when a Christian sins, I want you to notice it's not because he disagrees with the law. If you disagree with the law, you likely are not saved. The whole point of the change, the regeneration, the new covenant, where God is writing the law on your heart, on your mind, to where you think that way, is that you actually adopt the same view that the law adopts about everything. You see justice as the law sees it. You see love as the law sees it because that's the character of God. If you come to the law and you disagree with the law, what, what is there to say that you've been regenerated? What is there to say that you're a part of the new covenant if you disagree with the law? And that includes all the justice in the law. All the stuff about... Canaanites, about homosexuality, about everything, you disagree with that, your Christianity is in question. So Paul's not saying I disagree and therefore that's how I sin. The Christian fully agrees with the law. The problem is, is he has a nature that's pulling him, taking captive uh, his his uh, whole self and, and dragging him into sin. And so Paul says, it's not really me. It's not the eternal me. It's not the me that God has made me to be. It's, uh, it, it's this leftover me that's dying. It's this zombie of a thing that, you know, that, that, that when a Christian sins, he's basically feeding the zombie. Uh, ironically, feeding him in his own mind. You know, zombies eating brains and whatnot. Just to make the analogy complete there. Um. But that's what happens when a Christian sins. He is in agreement with the law, but he finds himself not doing it. He hates the fact that he has sinned. Paul, in the previous chapter, talks about how he's, you know, what benefit uh, were you deriving from those things that you're now ashamed of? So I realize no one's ashamed of sin because it's this type of insanity for the Christian, almost like moving outside of himself. And becoming something else in that moment. So I realize he's not ashamed in the moment, but afterward he is. When he comes to his senses, when he comes to his right self, he realizes this is this is awful. I hate it. Again, Christians, real Christians to regenerate, that's the way they sin. They don't sin by saying, Well, I don't really agree with the Bible on this part, and I think it's okay. And they don't start justifying themselves and they're they're not really ashamed of it. That's not a Christian. That's just a sinner. That's just a pagan sinning who thinks he's a Christian. (coughs) So the Christian sins in conflict with what he wants to do in his inner man, the spirit, and in his mind. Law here is used to refer to a governing principle or tendency. The law, you know, he sees this principle going on. Uh, There's one governing principle in his mind that wants to do what is good in agreement with the law. But there's another governing tendency in the parts of his body, these impulses of desire to do what is evil. So the problem is not knowing what is right and wrong, but rather the need to find redemption from the chaos that our body that belongs currently to sin wants to unleash even when we do not know what is right and wrong. Paul then cries out in verse 24, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? That is how a Christian sins, and that is his response to his own sin. He hates it, and when he realizes what he has done, and he comes to his senses from that insanity from him letting, uh, letting the body take control, that's really what it is. It's really just letting the chemicals in your body take control. It's like being on drugs almost or being drunk, like it's something else is now controlling. It's demonic. But when he comes to his senses, he weeps over it, he hates it, and he cries out to God, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Now, a lot of people will see this passage, agree with what I just said, and they'll stop there. They think that's it. Paul is not arguing, yes, and this is the normative Christian life. What he's simply saying is is that this is what sin looks like in the Christian and the fact that the law can't save him. You would just agree with the law, but the Christian ends up sinning anyway. So you cannot overcome sin by simply trying to obey the law. That's not how it works. Instead, though, he doesn't leave you here. He's going to now begin to argue that God has saved us in Christ Jesus and he's provided a way to overcome sin right now in your life. Let's read now uh, that passage. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. So he's actually serving the law of God with his mind. He agrees with it. He loves it. He wants to do it. He's uh, reaching forward toward it because it's the character of God and the character of Christ. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. This is very important to understand. The flesh is not getting better. Um, Paul argues in other places that the flesh is being corrupted continually right now. Even even as a Christian, it's still being corrupted uh, in the likeness of its own nature. It's the inner man who's being growing and renewing through the truth and growing to the point where he can overcome sin. And that's what he's going to argue here. The inner man that he refers to as either his mind or now he's going to turn and call it the spirit. Uh, which also has help from the Holy Spirit as well. So then, since the law has no jurisdiction in eight one, no jurisdiction anymore over us, it doesn't condemn us, um, and it's not also condemning us now in the Christian life, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ Jesus, notice. For the law of the life-giving spirit in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God achieved what the law could not do because it was weakened through the flesh. In other words, the law was perfect, but we weren't. And so it couldn't accomplish the goal of righteousness in us. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and concerning sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the just requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In us, who, who's the us? Those who don't walk in the flesh, but according to the spirit. Very important. We said last week, we'll say again, we've said before that God's goal is that you become holy and blameless, righteous, and that you live accordingly right now. And so this is true. There's no condemnation for those who are actually in Christ. And those who are in Christ are described as those who don't walk. They don't live in moment to moment to moment in the flesh and the weakness and destruction, the sinfulness of the flesh, but rather in the new life of the spirit that overcomes the flesh in the inner man in the regenerated man who loves God, loves the character of God and pursues God. For those who live according to the flesh have their outlook shaped by the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their outlook shaped by the things of the Spirit. For the outlook of the flesh is death, but the outlook of the Spirit is life and shalom. There's that piece again, but obviously shalom. Because the outlook of the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to the law of God, nor is it able to do so. Those who are in the flesh, cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. So very important, the way you overcome sin in your life is not by trying to get the flesh to sin less, to not uh, desire the girl who walks by you in the grocery market. To not want to slander your brother or sister in Christ as you're just sitting around, you know, the the idea that, well, I'll I'll just stop using people as entertainment because the law tells me I shouldn't. That's not the way that you're sanctified. Augustine argued, and this is I think what Paul is arguing, is that it is not that that you make the flesh love sin less. It's not going to love sin less it is instead understanding that you are created in a new man on the inside that loves God and therefore the inner man can love God more than the flesh loves sin and therefore take hold of your mind and your actions. That's how you overcome sin. To put on the Lord Jesus Christ, not just to throw off sin, So if you don't want to covet anymore, then what do you do? Well, if you don't replace it with good and the love of God in doing what's good, then you're just going to return to coveting. Instead, replace it with prayers of gratefulness. What does Paul say? Expands this in Ephesians, right? Let him who steals, steal no longer. Is that it? No, let him who steals, steal no longer but rather work with his hands to give to the needy if anybody anybody happens to have need. Don't get drunk with wine. Is that it? No, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't lie anymore. Is that all? No, don't lie anymore and speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. In other words... Replace the training of your life that's been in sin with the training of righteousness now with the love that you have in the inner man by loving God more. In other words, replace sin with the doing of good. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. That's Paul's advice. That's what Paul is arguing so that it is not merely me trying to stop myself through law because the law says don't do this. It's instead realizing that I've been created a new creature in Christ who loves God, is more powerful than the flesh, whose love for God is more powerful than the flesh's love for sin, and I therefore can live in the love of God by doing what's good. I don't mean some sappy uh, emotion for God. I mean showing him love in terms of what you think about, And your actions, deciding in this moment, I will love God and glorify him now because I have the ability to do so in the new man, instead of using this moment to puff the the flesh up and, and feed into it. Verse five, for those who live according to the flesh have their outlook shaped by the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit have their outlook shaped by the things of the spirit. So pretty soon you, you're doing these good things and your life starts to be transformed. The things that you did once you don't you're not doing anymore. And if you do those things you repent and you get right back on. For the outlook of the flesh is death, but the outlook of the spirit is life and shalom because the outlook of the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to the law of God, nor is it able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the flesh is not the vehicle of salvation. Trying to make it conform to the law is not the vehicle of sanctification. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, this person does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is your life because of righteousness. Moreover, if the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, The one who raised Christ from the dead will also make your mortal bodies alive through his spirit who lives in you. In other words, transformation of the body is in the eschaton. That is in glorification. That's the coming of the Lord. That's when the body will be transformed. Until that time, it will not be. So it already does belong to Christ, but Christ has not applied his work to the body yet. He's only applied it to the inner man, the spirit. So we would be foolish to think, well, I'm just going to make my body and the desires somehow go away through the law. They're not going to go away. So then verse 12, brothers, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So notice again, this is what Paul has said before. He says this in everything. He says it in Galatians. Don't be deceived. What a man sows, he's going to reap. If he sows to the flesh, then he'll reap death. If he sows to the spirit, he'll reap eternal life. Why? Because it's talking about the fact that the true faith produces fruit. That The faith that saves a man who's really justified will be sanctified and pursue the character of Christ. And he'll therefore walk in in accordance with the spirit and not in accordance with the flesh. His new nature and not in accordance with the old. This is what Paul is talking about. Again, when you go to Ephesians. How do, you, how do you actually uh, fight the devil and fight temptation? Well, you put on the armor of God, the full armor. And what are they? Well, the helmet of salvation and the gospel and, and the, the shield of faith that we'll talk about next week. It's important to actually have faith that God is going to keep his promises so that you're looking forward to them and you're not going into despair and wondering, oh, I don't know if it's really true, which is going to leave you in sin. And you take up the, the sword of truth, which is the word of God, the rhema, not the logos. So the preached word of God, the, the preached word as the church has given it to you in chapter four of Ephesians. So what does a Christian do when he sins? Is that the Christian life? No, that's him falling off the horse. And when you fall off the horse and you lose some of your armor, you put your armor on, you get back on the horse in repentance and you go to war. And that's what the spirit is. It is a massive weapon. It is a nuclear bomb to these pea shooter BB guns of the flesh. The flesh is not a match for it. As he has started his, his argument in chapter five, the, the Adamic sin, the sin nature, the flesh of man is not on par in terms of its power and ability that the spirit of God connected to our spirits has given us. We partake of the very divine nature, as Peter says. We have everything we need for life and godliness. Uh, The the Johannine epistles speak of this, the general epistles. Paul speaks about it in everything that he, he writes. This is the Christian life, the pursuit of the character of Christ walking in the spirit. So that the normative Christian life is not just sin, 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 oh, woe is me. But instead, it's Walking in the Spirit, victory, victory, victory. Sin, woe is me. Repentance, victory, victory. I mean, that's what should characterize your life. Now, there is, of course, a growth, right? I mean, we're babies. We're learning, uh, that, in fact, to use this weapon. Um, we're we're not used to using this weapon. We're used to basically failing and thinking that the flesh is stronger and we can't overcome it, and our sin's just too great, and temptation's just too great. But maturity is learning, growing in the truth and learning to uh, realize that you have the power to subject the flesh. Notice those who are, you know, don't be deceived. Those who uh, practice sexual morality or homosexuality or who are violent or any of that will not inherit the kingdom of God. But what does he say to the Corinthians? And such were some of you, not such are some of you. It doesn't mean you don't sin, but you should not be characterized by sin and you certainly should not be justifying or agreeing with sin. That's a worrisome thing for a Christian who has been regenerated and is supposed to agree with the law. But the law is not the vehicle to become like the law. It is the spirit of God. It's the new man that Christ has made us to be that is our vehicle of redemption. It is putting on the Lord Jesus Christ It is putting on the full armor of God. It is uh, submitting to your husband, husbands loving your wives, children obeying uh, your parents, Uh, those under authority obeying obeying those in authority. No longer destroyers, but learning to live as you grow in order to be givers of life. To take hold of the shalom. Shalom that has been granted to you in Christ. That is the Christian life. And victory comes with understanding that that's the path of salvation. Loving God more in the moment through your thoughts and actions than the flesh loves sin. The flesh will always love sin. It'll always desire it. You're not gonna get it to stop desiring, but you can you can let your mind be taken control of by your inner man who loves God more and decide in that moment to do what is right and good and loving toward God. And therefore, your inner man can whoop up on the, the, uh, the old man in the flesh. <coughs> well, there's a lot to discuss in this passage. I realize there are side issues, but again, I don't want to lose the main argument. I do want you to realize if you've been living in the religion of the shoulds and viewing the law as something external to you, because Paul talks about it as that which is written, um, the external document written to you, and you should do that thing, but you don't have to actually agree with it or love it or want to do it, then maybe there's a problem that you're not justified, and maybe there's a problem that you don't really have faith in Christ. Something is off. But if you agree with the law, you want to do it, you love it, you understand it's the character of God that you love and therefore you love the character of God in the law and you strive to do it and you use the spirit of God and the power that God has given you to overcome sin and to do those things, to do what's right, not just stop doing evil, but also do good in the world instead to replace it. Then when you do fail, you can have hope. As much as you hate those things when you fail, you're ashamed of them. You have hope that, look, one day I won't have this struggle anymore because a day is coming when my flesh will be made alive by the Spirit and I won't have to engage in this war anymore. There won't be any conflict. Both my spirit and my flesh, my whole being, will love God and it will do what is right before him. And so next time we're going to look at the fact that this is where it's all leading, the resurrection, the glorification, becoming conformed to the image of the Son, which is what he predestined us for, and talking about the love of God and how God has ensured us that if, in fact, we are in Christ, this will be completed. Uh, He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And he who begun this good work in us will complete it to the day of the Lord Jesus. And so we'll look at that next week. But that's Romans 7 and then part of 8. I want you to read the whole thing because the whole thing is uh, one argument that this is not how you're redeemed and this this is how you're redeemed. This is not how you're sanctified. This is how you're sanctified. It makes all the difference in the world to understand that it's not a matter of subjecting a nature that you cannot subject to the law, but rather it is an agreeing with the law in your inner man and overcoming that other nature. Uh, that we have victory in the Christian life. Well, let's go ahead and uh, and pray. Father, we thank you that you've set a path before us, that it is not as many have thought that we merely pray a prayer and we go to heaven and in our lives here now, we just get some hobbies and wait for you to come back because there's nothing else to do. You have made us for war. You have... Uh, taken us away, Lord. You have freed us from the slavery of Egypt. You have brought us to Sinai to show us what holiness is. But then you have brought us into the land that we might wage war to take hold of shalom. And only when it is done will we enjoy the land flowing with milk and honey. Father, we ask now that you clarify these things to those who hear them. It might be confusing Indeed, this is probably the passage that Peter is referring to when he talks about Paul speaking things that are difficult to understand. This chapter is very difficult in reading the commentaries, Lord, and and them trying to sift sift through it and figure out what it's talking about. But I think that we've understood it. That in fact, it is not through merely looking at your character that we become that way, but rather it is through the transformed nature of the inner man that we can live there and subdue the flesh through the renewing of the mind. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask now that you empower us, Lord, for this task. In Jesus' name, amen.